David, a bunch of Donald Trump fans got stranded on a tarmac in Omaha, Nebraska this week. Where after a Trump rally that was held late at night, there were no buses to take them back to their cars. What I want to know is, what is the worst event exiting experience you've ever had? <laughs> um, anything at MetLife Stadium. That's where the Giants used to play, right? That was my answer. Oh, sorry. That's, That's where the Giants my first still answer. play. I thought they moved or something. Am I, am I that crazy? That is the worst place in the world. I feel like, did we oh. go there to, no, no, no. You and I went to IZOD Stadium one time where the oh Nets used God. to play. Didn't we do a thing at IZOD and, and you just, I mean, that's another one where you walk out and you're like, I don't know where I'm supposed to catch my bus and I think I might die. I did, <laughs> there was there was one time where I actually did not have a bad experience, but many others did. <clears throat> I went to go see WrestleMania 28 in Miami, which was at, what, Sun Life Stadium. I, get, I think now it's called Hard Rock Stadium. But they, I was there solo. And I was, I was, uh, I, I left my hotel to go. To, I asked the guy, you know, the guy at the at the hotel lobby to like to to get me a taxi. And I went, and, and after like f ten minutes, he was like, "There's no taxis." And I was like, "Okay, can I call a car service?" And he gave me a couple numbers. He tried to call or whatever. There was no cars. He said, "Walk over to the main road. That's where the cars are." And I walked over to the main road and just saw. I mean, it was just lined with wrestling fans and like the full regalia. Some wearing t-shirts, some wearing costumes, but just mobs of wrestling fans trying to catch taxis. There was no way this is gonna that th th this was gonna happen. And so finally, I just called someone that I knew in Miami and offered them like a dinner in the future if they would give me a ride. And thankfully, they did, and it worked out. And I got that you know the drive was bumper to bumper the whole way. I got there anyway. Long long story short. About as the main event, which was The Rock versus John Cena, started at uh, at, at WrestleMania 28, I started getting incredibly anxious about leaving, and so I got up, and and by the way, everybody at WrestleMania people tailgate and stuff, so it's like people were arriving from noon until 8 p.m. Right, sure. and still there were no taxis to go, and and everybody now is trying to leave at the exact same time. So I left at the beginning of the main event, found the exit, and then walked into the entrance, walked into a tunnel, and just watched the main event standing up in the tunnel next to some like event staff. And then as soon as it was over, as soon as the bell rang, I sprinted out, sprinted all the way to the taxi line, dove in the first taxi, and just said "go go go." <laughs> and then and then and I got back no trouble at all. And then I got back to the hotel, turned on the news, and there was like police called to the theater and people were being sprayed with fire hoses because they were getting into fights over taxis to leave the place. Whoa. It was like, it was an incredible mess. But anyway, that, that was the, that's a very long story. Yeah. <laughs> that I didn't actually get troubled by. <laughs> Our um, sympathies to everyone in Omaha. Yeah. And uh, next time, follow David's advice. As soon as Trump starts insulting the media or starts <laughs> saying that the, the polls are all rigged, just sprint for the bus. Just just go, run, and beat, beat the crowd out. Coming up on the show today, is election night a sacred ritual of democracy or a really cool TV show? We're going to answer your listener mail, plus political reporter Jake Sherman. All that and more on the Press Box, a part of the Ringer Podcast Network. This episode is brought to you by Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com, A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com, Atlassian. 
tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Viore. I love sports. I know you do too. I also know that lots of you exercise, but if you're like me and my wife, the, the beloved sports gal, you're sick and tired of ugly, uncomfortable workout gear, especially, you know, I do a lot of walking. I walk around LA. I make calls. I listen to podcasts. Here are two words that will change everything. Viore clothing, a line of activewear that is unbelievable. The best thing about Viore is you can lounge around in it. You can work out in it. You can go outside. You can go shopping down in your local wherever. And you never feel like you're either underdressed or overdressed. You're just comfortable. You can wear it when you're training, traveling, lounging around the house. Go get yourself some of the most comfortable and versatile clothing on the planet. Here's the deal. Our listeners get 20% off their first purchase at viori.com slash Simmons. Once again, V-U-O-R-I.com slash Simmons. Hello, media consumers. Brian Curtis and David Shoemaker here. David, I wanted to start with a little clip from Donald Trump. There's some Marine One helicopter noise in the background, but listen to him talk about his expectations when he flips on the TV on Tuesday night. It would be very, very proper and very nice if a winner were declared on November 3rd instead of counting ballots for two weeks, which is totally inappropriate. And I don't believe that that's by our laws. I don't believe that. So we'll see what happens. I thought we could use that, David, as a segue to talk about election night TV. Whew. Okay. Because there's this tension, is there not, between letting all the votes be counted, letting democracy have room to breathe, and making election night into a TV show. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we've talked about this a little bit before, but I think that, that I mean, that is the central tension. I don't think there's anybody in any, you know, production meeting suggesting that, you know, at MSNBC or CNN or Fox suggesting that they take Tuesday night off just to make sure that, you know, they only come on with the most well-grounded reactions, you know, when, when all the votes are actually going to be counted. But I'd be very interested to know what those conversations, what the conversations they are having sound like, right? Because the, n- nothing in the playbook I'll just say this. It's conceivable that the entire election night TV playbook gets thrown out the window at about 8 p.m. Oh, I think so. Absolutely. I mean, I think in their heart of hearts, if you asked not the network news divisions, because they they would say, well, we'll cover this thing right until we have a winner. But if you ask like the network president, maybe the ideal would be to have election night coverage start at like 8 p.m. Eastern, mm-hmm. go about three or four hours. Mm-hmm. And right before midnight, when everybody on the East Coast is losing steam, a winner is declared. Yeah. And then you have a concession speech and a winner speech. And it's a tidy four, four and a half hour package. Mm-hmm. So only one problem with that is reporter Walter Shapiro tweets, reminder that in this century, only the two Obama elections were called on election night. Both 2004 and 2016 were called on a Wednesday and 2000 was called in December. so just going by that there are very let us say better than decent odds that we're not going to have a winner at least within the eastern time zone 
pre-midnight hour. What, what people are used to perceiving as elections being called a lot of the time are the networks making calls, right? The, the, the networks, the, the, the pollsters, the people who, who, who do this sort of data crunching for the networks make the call, right? I mean, the news department, whatever, the desk makes a call. That's not the election being decided. That's not an official pronouncement of who the winner is. And especially, I mean, talking about this century, since 2000, the networks have been, in, have been much more uh, reluctant to make those calls, right? And, and I think on a night like the one we're, we're quickly approaching, it'll be interesting to see how much confidence, how much security, you know, how much confidence the networks feel about their own, their own data, their own data operations to even be, to be predicting anything at all short of a, you know, formal proclamation. Okay. So the big, the big moment you're talking about where everything changes is 2000. Right. Where they call Florida for Al Gore and then they have to retract the call. Mm -hmm. And that sort of scares everybody at the network level. But then there's this other thing that happens, right? Whereas it's, it's the rise of the number cruncher on election night. Mm -hmm. Because it would have been really weird to go back in time 10 or 20 years and imagine that Steve Kornacki and John King would be the MVPs on the election set. Yeah. Not the political wise men and women and the news anchors and stuff like that. But at some point, everyone on the set and us at home has to turn to Kornacki and be like, that is the only guy who really understands what's going on here. Yeah. We have to pay attention to him. And the whole show is based on his reading of the numbers. And he's the only one who can start saying, guys, it looks like Joe Biden is going to win Pennsylvania. Or you can start being fairly sure that Joe Biden is going to win Pennsylvania. And everything hinges on that. That's yeah. a huge change in TV. Well, and, and listen, I mean, no disrespect to, to Kornacki. Uh, and his ilk, but you know, there's also an entire data operation going on behind the scenes, right? That is feeding them the information yes. that they need to know. I mean, we everybody I think remembers, or if not, you know, go to YouTube. Uh, Megyn Kelly's famous walk from the news desk on Fox News to their um, to their what data room, data desk. I don't even know what to call it. Um, and there was a great profile of the guy that runs that department not too long ago, um, which I guess I could look up and not be speaking so vaguely, but. Um, yeah, I mean, even what we're seeing, even the the kind of glorification of the data of the of the of the data, you know, guy or gal on TV, relies on a whole lot of other algorithms running in the back, right? I mean, and 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 then, but that is clearly layered with a certain uh, some level of decision from the people in charge as to what what degree we're going to go with it, right? I mean, how what does it take for us to say it confidently on the air? Arnon Mishkin is the name of the director of the Fox News decision desk. But yeah, you're right. That that was the point, because remember, the whole Megyn Kelly walk was preceded by Karl Rove. Oh, yeah, exactly. The kind of political wise man I'm talking about saying, I don't know, is are we are we are we calling this too soon for Barack Obama over Mitt Romney? And Megyn Kelly walks back there and numbers guy. Which is who you're talking about, goes, no, nah, not really. We're really confident in this, right? Mm -hmm. We know we know something about the nature of this election that you don't. And by the way, you know who else is a fan of the number crunchers? Donald Trump. Because listen to this riff about 2016 that he made earlier in the week. And they go, Donald Trump has just won the state of Ohio. But here was the problem. One by eight points. This was not like that was like the biggest victory. They couldn't believe it. And they said, there's something going on here, but I'm sure this is just... Remember with the hand, John King, the hand, shake it. 
<laughs> Donald Trump does not trust the numbers, but he remembers very clearly when CNN's numbers guy, John King, declared him the winner of Ohio. Mm -hmm. So, of course, the other tension here, David, is Donald Trump, because he has been saying, as you heard in that earlier clip, that he thinks the winner should be announced on election night. Mm -hmm. That votes should that it were sent mostly by absentee ballots or mail ballots should not count if they come in past a certain date. Mm -hmm. And I feel there are two parts of that. One is obviously Trump is trying to suppress monkey with craft the vote to his advantage. But number two, Donald Trump is to also is also to some extent a TV watcher. Is he not? Like he is. A, he is a creature yeah. of television. Oh, for sure. For sure. And, you know, Donald Trump is used to TV where at the end of the hour, someone gets fired on The Apprentice. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I think somewhere in Donald Trump's mind, it's like, well, look, this is going to last till midnight. And then at midnight, either I'm going to get fired or Joe Biden's going to get fired. Yes, it's highly unlikely anyone will get fired or hired or whatever at the end of the hour. Um, although, you know, you know, one doesn't have to be too conspiratorially minded to imagine that someone who's so you know, good at television could, would be interested in writing his own ending to the night. I mean, it's not, it's not, you know, if he's, if he's up in the, if he's up in the vote count in Pennsylvania, you know, 11 PM on Tuesday and he goes out and get, and gives an acceptance speech. I mean, that changes the narrative moving forward incredibly, even if it's transparent. So we should be worried about that just generally speaking, because that's a really bad outcome. But should mm -hmm. we be worried about anybody believing that kind of declaration other than the people who want to believe it? You mean from a from a media side or just a general government? I mean, just a general well, being American side. Well, Donald Trump preemptively declaring himself the winner of the election based on some random point in the night where he decides, OK, that's enough. I've won because I'm ahead at this point. That's a bad mm -hmm. thing. Are people really going to believe that? I mean, we've, I feel like we've spent the last three weeks talking like as a media talking about that and basically warning people about that. I so mean, at what point does anybody, well, oh, he said he won. I don't know. You know, but, or is it just going to be, ah, listen, everyone else in the media, even though that guy at the Fox news decision desk says Donald Trump has not won the election yet. So is that going to be something? A lot is writing on the Fox news decision desk as, as always, or the or just Fox news presentation in general. I, I, <sighs> You know, it'll be interesting to, to see the amount of people who are, I mean, uh, you know, the amount of Americans who are still getting or, you know, still getting their news even from these mainstream sources, because I'm sure there'll be some outlets like the ones the president, you know, promotes on his Twitter feed that that will be filled with disinformation. I don't know. I mean, do we have to worry about it? I mean, I think that if I honest to God believe that if regardless of what Trump does, well, we saw we saw that the Supreme Court decided not to step in on the yet, at least uh, on the issue of like vote counting, you know, the, the vote counting, the vote deadline in Pennsylvania and in other states. But Pennsylvania is still separating out the votes that come in after 8 p.m. on election night. Right. Because they want to make sure that if, if something is if it's thrown into question in the future, they have everything divvied up. Well, presumably, then those numbers will be available. And if for whatever reason that Pennsylvania becomes the state that matters and Trump is ahead in the first chunk of votes, then that data will be out there and you'll have a huge chunk of America that regardless of whether or not they believe the final number, regardless of whether or not they accept the results, will continue to believe that 
here here is the the literal proof that Trump won the election, right? Even though we're not even though you've cho- you've chosen to abide by different rules, but this is this is a different. They're operating in a different sort of you know universe than it, than everybody else. That's what we deal with every day here. I mean, it's not like and and more often than not, you and I would say those people broadly defined are wrong. But you know, we're not. No one's really. We're we're not operating from the same same principles, I guess. Well, and I guess that gets to my question: is is we we recognize it universally as being very dangerous to democracy to somebody to falsely declare that they won an election. Mm-hmm. But I just wonder if the forces of actual information versus the forces of misinformation, if there are so many more people in column A than in column B, that that will be anything seen as anything other than a stunt or something silly and false by the large amount of the American people, right? Because both things could happen. Donald Trump could declare that he's won the election, declare there's massive voter fraud, declare whatever he wants, and Joe Biden can still win the election and become president in January. Yeah, yeah. In fact, that's probably a fairly likely scenario. I'm more, yeah, I guess, I guess maybe irrationally, but I personally am more concerned with all of the Americans who won't accept the verdict, even if Trump, than I am with Trump just like refusing to leave his seat. If, if Trump, if Trump loses, I mean, I I just, I think, I just think that that's, I think that there's, it's practically a little bit more easy, a a little bit simpler to get, you know. An illegitimate president to leave the pr- the premises than it is to reconvince hundreds of thousands of misinformed people. Have you seen how the warnings about misinformation on election night have filtered down to America's children? <laughs> the, Atlant- the Atlantic's Edward Isaac Devere posted this tutorial from the children's educational site Brain Pop. It's not familiar with this. It's not on my kids' radar. But listen to how clearly this whole problem is explained to the kids. An early lead on election night doesn't guarantee a win. So if any candidate is claiming early victory, be skeptical. That goes for news sources, too. Remember that some commentators may want a particular candidate to win, and media outlets more aligned with one party could be quick to draw conclusions about who won. If that gets shared around enough, it could create a false narrative and damage the public trust in the election. So can we have Rachel Maddow just read a slightly <laughs> less kindergarten teacher voice of that on the news every night between now and Tuesday? <laughs> I mean, I think the people who are watching Rachel Maddow are pretty, you know, okay. comfortable. Lester with those, Holt, uh, yeah. you know, can we get him on board? Yeah, Mar- I mean. Can Martha uh, McCallum I, I, read that? Fox? <laughs> I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. I, listen, I think that I, I have no doubt that all of the networks, including Fox, are going to come on on election night fully prepared to explain this at the front end and as the night goes on. Right? That that, that there is there are a lot of votes to be counted. I think that the real state of play is how well they, you know, explain the ongoing Supreme Court potential, you know, potential litigation that that might follow. I, it's going to get really messy. I don't, I don't, I mean, I think, well, it could get really messy. And I think that it's a much bigger story, both looking back and looking forward than could possibly be encapsulated on election night. So it, it's, it is, a, it's, a, it's a difficult job. Um, let's hope that they're up for it. To that point, here is 538's Galen Druk talking with Dan Merkel. Dan Merkel is the guy who runs the decision desk at ABC News. Here he talks about how long the whole process is going to take. 
Do you think it would be possible to project an overall winner on election night without results from Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania? I think that would be very difficult. Um, I just, you know, again, nothing's impossible. And at the D-Desk, we're prepared for anything. But uh, that, that it seems likely that if we're not able to project those, we'd have to have to wait on the overall. Because the way we project the president is, you know, it, it really is when someone gets to 270 electoral votes. So it's not like we're modeling it and saying, well, we think we think one of the candidates will get there. We actually have to have the states projected added up to the 270 in order to have a winner. So are you going into election night then thinking that you won't project an overall winner uh, on November 3rd or in the early hours of November 4th? Well, like I said, you know, I think it's a distinct possibility, but I'm not I'm not going to say never because I don't want to set that expectation. You know, we've we've seen unexpected things happen before, so it's possible, but not probable. I love the term D desk. Gives an Avengers style feel to a bunch of nerdy guys and gals sitting in a back room at ABC News. Yeah, totally true. Um, but listen, for that night, <clears throat> possibly for that entire week, the people at those various uh, D desks will be the biggest superheroes or the you know the biggest pop culture stars in our country. You know, I mean it's it's like a it's it's like a the jury of a you know mega trial or something. I mean, it's, these are the people who are going to be. Um, they're just, you know, they're, they're just running numbers, but they're going to be seen as the people who are, you know, counting the votes or beyond that, even like, you know, voting themselves. Before we get out of here, can I give you my top four types of articles you're going to read between now and Tuesday night? Oh, please. Number one, 9,000 new Trump investigations. I think you pointed this out in email. Mm-hmm. Is everybody just trying to beat the deadline? Like, well, we got we got one more scandal here. <laughs> can we get can we get this out before Tuesday? There were there were like three today that I I hadn't even I had just seen like the the tweet and hadn't even had a chance to read yet. <laughs> that was kind of amazing. Number two, the scare the shit out of the liberal story. This is oh, a time honored. Just absolutely time-honored genre. I saw uh, one. There was one in the New York Times op-ed page, which was essentially about can we trust Pennsylvania's polls? That was the title, and the evidence was, I don't know. I'm walking around Pennsylvania, and it doesn't seem like Joe Biden's going to win. <laughs> <laughs> and it really doesn't matter whether that story's wrong or right. Its seemingly sole purpose is just to freak out resistance Twitter. Right? That oh, you're yeah. watching Nate Silver, watching all these people, it's like, oh my God, what, 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 what is going to happen? Did you read that article in the New York Times? There's freak out of resistance Twitter, and there's also, I mean, this is kind of the same thing, but part and parcel. But the the, it, the more that you like engage in media ethics Twitter, as long the more people that you get arguing over whether or not the, the piece is justified and running in the first place, it seems like it's it does seem like there's a there's a crass. Uh, advantage or there, 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 you, that you that you reap some reward for for just freaking out i mean just just having people asking whether or not you should have published the piece absolutely absolutely especially now because everyone's on edge mm-hmm. uh number number three really isn't a type of article it's more of a tv interview which is people on cnn or msnbc cutting off interviews with trump spokespersons because they are saying fake things on the air <laughs> oh yeah you see there's been like two jake tapper versions of this i feel in the last couple of weeks mm-hmm. hallie jackson on nbc had one just that's yeah. it 
right? I may have given you another 30 seconds to a minute before, but now here in the apparently waning days of the Trump administration, I'm done. You're cut off. I'm sorry. We have to move on. Do you think they're going to add a few extra seconds to the uh, to the delay so that they can just cut off <laughs> people from the Trump campaign if this becomes if this becomes super problematic? That's a good. We're going to do prop bets on Monday, and I think sacrificial lamb of a Trump spokesperson that comes out to talk on election night while Donald is watching TV. That's that's a great bet. It would be pretty amazing if Trump declared victory. Or kind of, he, I guess he doesn't have to for this to work, but it would be great if he declared victory and every every pro-Trump talking head that they got on TV after that was coming was coming live from the Trump victory party. So there's just confetti falling in the background and they're just running to the camera, <laughs> pumping their fist and screaming. Uh-huh. That that would that would be that would be a really really wild move. You hear those little whistles that everyone has on New Year's Eve in the background. <laughs> yes, <laughs> it's just the same five people walking back and forth over and over again, but they try to make it look like there's a giant party going on. Number four on my list, and this is more of a personal thing, David. But reporters who put the "I voted" sticker on and then take a picture of themselves for social media. <laughs> Go on. I don't I don't like when social media content is laundered as a public good. Right? <laughs> if you want the Instagram photo, Facebook, whatever photo of yourself, knock yourself out. I, I'm not gonna worry about that. But putting on the I voted secret, I I'm I'm just encouraging everyone out there to do their civic duty. Come on. Come on. If you hadn't voted that day, you would have just taken another picture. You would have yeah. found something else to put on Instagram. Mm-hmm. So don't so don't launder so don't launder your social media strategy as as your civic dude. <laughs> Amen. I'm sick of it. All right, David. Time for the overworked Twitter joke of the week, where we celebrate a gag that was so obvious that all of media Twitter made it at exactly the same time. Send your nominees to at the press box pod, where they are always gratefully received. On Tuesday, David Kim Kardashian gave the world its most mocked tweet. Quoting, after two weeks of multiple health screens and asking everyone to quarantine, I surprised my closest inner circle with a trip to a private island where we could pretend things were normal just for a brief moment in time. Lots of people posting pictures from Jurassic Park, uh, from Luke Skywalker's island in The Last Jedi, (laughs) from Castaway, and my favorite from the Island of Dr. Moreau, <laughs> starring Marlon Brando from a couple of years ago. Thanks to Don Steele and Sugar Lemon for that one. Next up, David, remember Anonymous? He wrote a New York Times op-ed, mm-hmm. later a book. I remember, yeah. Well, he has unmasked himself. He is Miles Taylor, a Department of Homeland Security official. Uh, a number of jokes, including... Posting pictures of Joe Klein, the anonymous author of Primary Colors, back in 1996. Uh, Another one said, the big reveal is that it turns out Anonymous was you all along. And I enjoyed this from DJ Judd of CNN. The return of Anonymous has big 2020 season finale energy in the television show of life. Thanks to everyone who sent that in. And finally, David, there has been a rash of 11th hour sports endorsements in the presidential race. Golfer Jack Nicklaus came out for Trump, and now so has former NFL quarterback 
Jay Cutler. Jay Cutler. It was an overworked Twitter joke to write, yeah, but there's like a 50% chance Biden intercepts the endorsement and returns it for a touchdown. <laughs> Thanks to JMT. If you reminded us that Jay Cutler is also bad at politics, congrats. You made the overworked Twitter joke of the week. This episode is brought to you by Viore. I love sports. I know you do too. I also know that lots of you exercise, but if you're like me and my wife, the, the beloved sports gal, you're sick and tired of ugly, uncomfortable workout gear, especially, you know, I do a lot of walking. I walk around LA. I make calls. I listen to podcasts. Here are two words that will change everything. Viore clothing, a line of activewear that is unbelievable. The best thing about Viore is you can lounge around in it. You can work out in it. You can go outside. You can go shopping down in your local wherever. And you never feel like you're either underdressed or overdressed. You're just comfortable. You can wear it when you're training, traveling, lounging around the house. Go get yourself some of the most comfortable and versatile clothing on the planet. Here's the deal. Our listeners get 20% off their first purchase at viori.com slash Simmons. Once again, V-U-O-R-I.com slash Simmons. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. Time for the notebook dump, Mr. Shoemaker. All right. And let us do a little listener mail. On Monday, we were 80 splaining to Chris Almeida, who DJ Casey Kasem was, famous voice from the top 40. But as Scott Mincer, Roger Simon, or Simone, an XMFX note, we completely whiffed on mentioning that Casey Kasem was also the voice of Shaggy in the Scooby-Doo cartoons. I was about to say it, but I felt a little bit like I was shouting into the abyss at that point. Like I, I, I was not confident that Chris would have any idea who those people were either. So uh, I was happy to move on. You were terrified Chris was going to say, wait, what's Scooby-Doo? Yeah. <laughs> Tony Adame, David, wants us to address the Jeffrey Tubin issue. We really didn't get a chance to address Tubin Gate. Oh, man. It sort of happened right after a pod and we were doing something else. But anyway, if you have not spent one second on media Twitter, last week, the New Yorker writer Jeffrey Tubin was suspended following what is now known as the Zoom dick incident. Thank God Jim's not here to clip that out. First reported in Vice, 
The gist is that New Yorker writers and WNYC producers were on a Zoom call doing an election simulation, which has still not been explained to my satisfaction. Uh, various reporters were playing different people in different organizations, including Jelani Cobb as establishment Democrats. Also, Dexter Filkins playing the military. Mm-hmm. I don't even understand what that is. Anyway, while the Democrats and Republicans were in breakout sessions, Tubins, here's how the New York Times described it anyway, quote, switched to a second call that was the video call equivalent of phone sex. And then he appeared somewhat exposed on camera. He's not allowed to work with WNYC, a source told Vice, and has taken leave from CNN. David, what do we do about this? Well, I think you can probably toss the election simulation results out the window. I mean, no one, <laughs> nobody's head could have been in the game for the second half of that. It, it truly was. If, if you're going to cast doubt on any election, it's the <laughs> New Yorker's election simulation. Um, listen, I, I don't, I don't know what to say. I mean, I can't imagine a story that's more perfect for this moment in time, just in terms of, uh, electrifying Twitter and and sort of catching everybody's attention both because of the well i mean it's a it's a work zoom call it's about the election it's sex or you know self sex whatever you want to categorize that as this has everything you would want um short of like donald trump talking shit about lebron james to kind of captivate the entire media landscape right now um you know, you get past the first round of dunking and uh, and joke making, and it you know it becomes a sort of sad story, right? I mean, and I think that for I don't know for how many people it's identifiable, but it's you know it, there's there's not a lot of there's not a lot of like second tier humor there, right? I mean, it's just sort of no problematic and disturbing and just sort of sad. I mean, I, it, it's um yeah. I kind of, you know, we didn't talk about it. We were, we were literally recording as this story was breaking a couple of weeks ago. And then, um, you know, I kind of half seriously said, if it, if it blows up any bigger, maybe we should just do an emergency episode. And But I felt like it sort of, I don't know. I don't think we moved on from it super quickly, but it's apex. It's bright shining, you know, peak was pretty brief. Yeah, I completely agree about first tier humor, second tier just sad on multiple levels and i i just don't know i mean on the one hand he insisted and i think we have probably a lot of reasons to believe him that he did not intentionally do that right in front of his colleagues so on the one hand there's this argument of like it was just this terrible terrible accident and you know we should be at least we should at least think about journalistic forgiveness or professional forgiveness for that. But then there's a second part, which is all of his colleagues who saw that, right. And watched that on a zoom call. And I don't want to, I wouldn't want to discount their experiences either. I just, I just wonder if at some point in the New Yorker's decision-making process, it comes down to that, you know, what, what his colleagues who were on that call have to say to David Remnick and company there. Well, and, and and there's the real question of, you know, yes, what exactly the colleagues and what they experienced and what their what their feelings are, you know, because this is it's sort of hard to separate that from the sort of broad notion of offense, right? I mean, sure, certainly they were exposed to a 
thing that most people would define as offensive, but unless they were, I mean, but it, but it does matter specifically how they, how they were affected by it, you know, and, and, and in no means should this vindicate Tubin or, you know, lighten the situation. But I mean, certainly the, like the sexual aspect of it is significant to the way that it was, I mean, everybody, everybody engaged with this as a joke for the first 24 hours. Right. I mean, and and still are for the most part. I mean, I can imagine that, I mean, certainly it's, he, this it's, it's apples and oranges, but like there are other worse things that he could have done that, that, probably would have gotten a lot less attention on Twitter and in the news and everywhere else. You know, I mean, if it, if he had like thought the camera was off and he like kicked his dog or something, I mean, people would have been potentially rightfully offended by that, but I have a hard time imagining that blowing up on Twitter the way that, you know, what happened did. Right. There's some, there's something that we could agree was bad if it was, if it was, you know, at all, but this was something we probably wouldn't care about. That wouldn't necessarily be big news is what I'm saying. Something much worse could happen that wasn't, you know, that, that wouldn't necessarily b- break news like that if it's in a private Zoom call. It's, 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 a, it's, it's just, a, it's a hard story to wrap your mind around, but I agree. It's the people who were affected by that, who, who I think the New Yorker is probably, I mean, it wouldn't surprise me if that's what it came down to, like you said. Let's spend a moment on Tucker Carlson. Last night on his show, Carlson was interviewing Tony Bobolinsky the former Hunter Biden associate who is now claiming the Democratic presidential nominee Joe Biden is lying about his involvement in his son's Chinese business dealings. Okay. Uh, Then Carlson goes into a monologue about something else while sitting behind a chyron that said, damning Hunter Biden documents suddenly vanish. Give a listen to this. So on Monday of this week, we received from a source a collection of confidential documents related to the Biden family. We believe those documents are authentic, they're real, and they're damning. At the time we received them, my executive producer, Justin Wells, and I were in Los Angeles preparing to interview Tony Bobolinsky about the Biden's business dealings in China, Ukraine, and other countries. So we texted a producer in New York, and we asked him to send those documents to us in L.A., and he did that. So Monday afternoon of this week, he shipped those documents overnight to California with a large national carrier, a brand-name company that we've used, you've used countless times with never a single problem. But the Biden documents never arrived in Los Angeles. Tuesday morning, we received word from the shipping company that our package had been opened and the contents were missing. The documents had disappeared. Listen, I think we all have some point at some point in our lives forced our friends to listen to an incredibly boring story about a UPS package going missing that could have just been half a sentence and ended up being five minutes long. But wow, hats off to Tucker Carlson for not only turning it into a whole segment on his show, but but actually using it to back a non-existent conspiracy theory about the Democratic nominee for president for the presidency. I mean, it this is this is just <laughs> just uh, in in the in the world of just hyperbole and disinformation. I don't think it gets any better than this. Un- unlike the Tubin thing, this is an uncomplicated laugh. <laughs> The incriminating documents went missing. <laughs> okay. Absolutely. Also, and I don't know if you want to spend a second here on anonymous, but sure. was that was that something of a of a letdown in yeah. terms of who that could have been? Well, yeah. I mean, and I think the fact that everybody was sort of talking themselves down bef- at the at the time, right? I mean, we had kind of like 
conventional wisdom had sort of started high and pretty quickly settled onto like the John Huntsman's of the administration, right? But like as the piece came out, so our expectations were already super low, and the and the reveal was, I mean, I don't know how you can. how it could have been less less compelling, less ex- it was like it was like the first time the a mask came off on the masked singer. I don't even remember the first, but you're just like, oh, and the like the judges are literally saying, is this could this possibly be former President Barack Obama? And the mask comes off, and it's like Cheech Marin or whoever. No, 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 it wasn't. It was Tommy Chong. Well, yeah. I don't even know if he was the first one, but it wasn't Cheech. It was, it was Tommy yeah. Chong. Uh, yeah, and then you and all of a sudden you have to just readjust your entire frame of mind like oh these aren't going to be stars that's sort of the point of the show i guess but like yeah it's certainly not former president barack obama uh he was not the answer in yeah. either of these reveals it was not kellyanne conway who by the <laughs> way i would like to nominate for a potential mass singer contestant if indeed we have another season i, I contracts I would, probably already signed yeah w- would watch would watch uh this is from shane nyman and matt they had similar questions what besides twitter will you two be watching on election night what news channels um, as someone who does not uh, partake in the, or usually partake in the the, the uh, I think the multi-screen sports experience, although I believe it's mandated by my Ringer contract, I might have multiple screens. I'll probably have multiple screens set up for this one, just to see the way that everybody's reacting. But a lot of, I mean, I'm sure, like you said, besides Twitter, I mean, I'm sure we'll all be paying attention to the upshot and the 538 and to, you know, all the other sources of, well, crunchier data online. Um, I think I'll probably be paying more attention to, to that than, than, you know, anything that's going on in TV. Yeah. I would, I would say my happy place is like CNN and MSNBC on the flip on television. And then your so-called second screen as like Nate Silver Dave Wasserman and the New York Times needle. And that <laughs> pretty much gets you through the night. Yeah. And then, of course, you want to just, you know, Twitter jokes and stuff like that, which we will be hunting for. Please send them to us. Uh, this is from Elizabeth Gardner. David, will you use coffee or some energy drink to stay up late listening to election results? Or can you stay awake naturally? David's on the East Coast, so he gets to answer this one. Uh, coffee d- does work. Um, I usually do just some sort of caffeine caffeinated beverage a coke or something like that sugar helps too although i'm definitely at the age now where like you know it's not ju- it, it it affects more than you know when the when when the when the channels go off the air i keep going so i you know i, I gotta i gotta watch it a little bit but yeah i mean i think you know it'll probably be some really ill-advised cocktail of of uh you know caffeinated beverages and and delicious Modelo cans <laughs> from Andrew Joe Potter, John Taffer, the host of bar rescue. David has landed a Trump interview. <laughs> so Jason Whitlock got one, the sports writer and now mm-hmm. the host of bar rescue. Uh, so Andrew asks who else will get an exclusive interview with the president with a week until election day, dog, the bounty hunter, the winner of Joe Schmo <laughs> as, as dog, the bounty hunter come out as a Trump surrogate or something. I feel like, he is absolutely uh, a potential candidate for we, that. We should look that up right now. I don't know. I mean, it is it is interesting. It's the second time in the week I'm going to name check between two ferns, but Obama did go on in between two ferns. I think that was to help pr- promote the ACA or when, when he was trying to get the ACA going, one, one of those things. There were So 
it's this like Trump is not the first person to sort of like micro target re- uh, interviews, um, probably with an eye towards getting, you know, a big social media reaction. But this does seem like a weird procession. I mean, the John Taffer thing, you know, at some point you got to wonder if Trump is just like just giving interviews to people that he wants to meet before he has to go back to his regular life. You know, I mean, (laughs) absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Here we got an update. This is from a January New York Times profile about Dog the Bounty Hunter after the death of his wife. Headline, Dog the Bounty Hunter is hunting alone. He says... Dog won't say who he voted for, according to the Times, but he did attend Donald Trump's inauguration. He said it didn't matter to him who is in the White House. I feel an allegiance, he said. I think Michelle Obama would make a great president. Okay. So that is Dog the Bounty Hunter's <laughs> politics. Finally, this is from Jeff Warren. Might be a tired question, but I'm getting PTSD from 2016 with so many people talking about Trump's loss like it's a foregone conclusion. Any hesitation in framing it that way or just framing up the 80% chance Biden supposedly has as the reality? I know Biden's polling is a lot stronger than Hillary's at this point, but states like Pennsylvania and Michigan, surprising us again, could lead to a repeat of 2016. How do we talk about Biden's chances, David, without overstating them? Well, a lot of people are trying really hard to figure this out in real time. Um, You know, I think that the real tension now, I mean, for people who are paying close attention, I think that the real tension comes in the data heads starting from a point of view that the more data they can present and the and the less kind of spin they can put on it, the better. And then the but the reality being that the vast majority of people who are reading that want you to just give them a one sentence takeaway from everything that you're feeding them. So, you know, it it's hard to it's hard to talk about an election because there are numerous paths to the presidency for for both parties. If it really were just Pennsylvania or just Wisconsin or just those two states, you know, uh, I think there'd be a simple conversation, a simpler conversation to have. But I mean, the idea that Pennsylvania is up for grabs is a real thing, especially with Trump, you know, doing four rallies in a day or two out here this week. And, and uh, you know, I mean, it's, I, I don't think anybody should be too confident. I don't think anybody should be too. I mean, spe- and, and but I but I do think that, man, it's it's just it's it's hard. It's hard. I mean, it's it's. I think that there's a, I think that there's a way that you can that you you know you can have a sort of quiet confidence. But it does feel like, despite everybody's reluctance to fall in the same trap they did four years ago, it's hard to avoid that. It's feeling like we're just waiting till the very end to to, to have that irrational confidence again, doesn't it? Yeah, well, I think, yes, I agree with that. I think part of the 2016 PTSD, if that's the right term for it, is that a lot of people just seems like they didn't understand percentages. I know Nate Silver tweets about this all the time, but like right now, looking at his forecast, Joe Biden has an 89% chance to win the election. Donald Trump has an 11% chance to win the election, which is about one in 10 chance. Mm -hmm. That means that Donald Trump has a one in 10 chance to win the election. Mm Mm-hmm. (laughs) <laughs> I and it just feels like well you said Biden was going to win it's like no we didn't say he didn't say Biden was going to win he said these are the odds Biden is going to win somehow people apparently have never seen a football game or baseball game yeah. that involves that involves lines and percentage chances that the teams are going to win this is it right and if you can just say that Biden has a 90% chance to win the election that means that Donald Trump has a non-trivial 10% chance to win the election too 
Yeah. That would seemingly solve the problem. I think you're right that most people don't, you know, aren't as familiar with betting lines <laughs> as, as, as it might seem like from where we stand. That might be the very definition of our ivory tower, uh, whatever, it, uh, however you want to call <laughs> whatever you want to call it. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I saw, I saw Nate Silver on Twitter actually making this point that like there, he, he was saying that there are probably other outlets, not 538, but other outlets who are overcompensating in the pro Trump direction for fear of looking like if they get it wrong again, they want to be a little bit higher than 10% or whatever, even if they think that, that that's the real, the real chance. Mm-hmm. But, th- but then Nate went on to say that practically there's not a real big difference between saying Trump has a 10% chance and Trump has a 35% chance, which at that point you're like, okay, I trust that you were right in whatever, however you, whatever, whatever you want to say, but like, I am now I'm lost. You know, I mean, it's, <laughs> it's a, uh, I think that I we're all, I mean, there, there's a, there's a point where in which we all get sort of lost in the weeds in these conversations. And like I said, you just got like, there's, you know, we're getting, we have a, there is a lot of information available to us. There's also a lot of stories like I'm walking around Pennsylvania and seeing a lot of Trump signs. So do, you know, are, are we crazy? I mean, there's, there's, there's lots of everything. And there was a great story, what, a week or two ago about how there was a, a huge indicator was that, uh, I mean, listen, I took great, I got a great feeling after reading the story that, that, um, that liberals in Trump counties or Trump, you know, on Trump blocks were not afraid to put up Biden signs like they would have been afraid to put up Hillary signs like four years ago or whatever. Like the, those stories are all out there, but it's, it's, um, it's just wading through everything. I mean, I don't, I don't know that there's, I don't think anyone would argue that there's like one thing that you can look at to prove that Biden's going to win or Trump's going to lose or the other way around. And yeah, we're just all in a very uncomfortable. I mean, listen, you can you can be as calm, you can be as as positive as you want, as certain as you want online. Uh, I think everybody's still pretty uncertain at their core. You know who never overstates the odds, David? Politico's Jake Sherman. He joined us a little earlier today to talk about the Playbook newsletter, the 2020 election, his future in the business. Here's Jake Sherman. All right, along with his colleague, Anna Palmer, Jake Sherman woke up on Thursday and won the morning in Politico's Playbook newsletter, which offers a mix of scoops and analysis and shouts out the birthdays of Washington luminaries like Biden comms director Kate Bedenfield. Jake's here to talk about newslettering, the 2020 campaign and other stuff. Jake, thanks for coming on the press box. Thanks for having me. So this morning, Playbook leads with Nancy Pelosi's latest salvo on the stimulus negotiations, which have seemingly been going on for nine years now. Give me the behind the scenes. When and why did you guys decide to make that the lead story? That's a very good question. Um, so a few things. We see our job right now. Um, I would say this. We, the media right now, and, and generally speaking, follows a lot of shiny objects. Um, and and I don't mean that as an insult to anybody, but like I know my expertise and my audience is going to be getting takes about anonymous and about Biden's campaign and Texas and Trump's campaign from everybody. But I, my view is I... Anna and I have a really, really good insight into governing just because it's what we've been covering for a long time and the people and the power and the um, politics behind governing. And uh, uh, the stimulus negotiation is a true kind of like 
inside Washington battle that impacts everybody. And um, we got our hands on this letter last night that Pelosi was sending to Steven Mnuchin. Um, and we got it pretty late. Pelosi, I think, sent it at 10 of one in the morning or something like that. And um, uh, no one else had that. So when when our readers were opening up Playbook, they saw that with in our publication first. And um, uh, and it showed. I mean, everyone was chasing it this morning. The Post was chasing it. Um, Larry Kudlow on, on Fox this morning said that Politico had it before Steven Mnuchin had it, which was a lie or not a lie. It was not true. I don't know if he knew it was not true. Um, and, and the back and forth between Pelosi and Mnuchin is just endlessly fascinating to our audience and to financial markets too. So it was kind of a really good sweet spot for us. Um, and remember, we do this, we do playbook 12 times a week. So, so, um, we have to have something new and exciting and fresh to say every day. So the sweet spot is exclusive plus different than what you might be reading in the Times or Post as the lead story, plus ideally more substantial and more with more real-world consequences than, hey, there's a new Trump poll. You know, I wouldn't even... I would Some of that, yes. I mean, some of the time, you know, we have the... I f- sometimes feel like I read news stories and I'm like, what is this trying to tell me? Like, wh- what is my takeaway supposed to be here? Like, I listen, I have the most, like, one of the most traditional journalism backgrounds of anybody, um, my generation, right? I, I, I graduated, I was the editor of my college paper. I went to Columbia for grad school. I I did all the internships. So like, I believe in, in, I I am a very like straight laced, no bias type person, but like, I, I want to, like, I feel like I need to have a take, right? Like not a hot take, like a, you know, Biden should really be in Hawaii, you know, like not that kind of garbage, but like, I feel like I should be able to tell my readers cut through the kind of the BS and be able to tell them what's going on and what they should care about. And my readers, like we never forget, Anna and I never forget who our audience is. Our audience uh, are chiefs of staff to the president, to members of Congress and members of Congress themselves top-level aides and people who are existing in this ecosystem every day in the politics and policy space. So um, sometimes that will be a New York Times story. Sometimes it will be a Washington Post story. Sometimes it will be some take that's relatively popular, but in our own kind of way. Sometimes it'll be exclusive news. Sometimes it won't, you know, but I just feel like you have to have something to say that that you could, that we could say in playbook that that other people might not be able to say or might not be able to get. What time do you guys write the morning edition of Playbook? <laughs> you know, Anna likes to say that um, we more people are interested in our sleeping habits now than in any other point in our life. Um, no one ever <laughs> asked us when we went to sleep and woke up. We get up sometime between three and four, um, which actually is not horrible. I just got a a whoop. Uh, I don't know if you know what these things are. I'm sure you do. Uh, and um, you have one as well. No, no. Uh, you, this oh, is I thought new you were, to me. You're, Okay, so a whoop just tracks your sleeping and your activity, and uh, it it makes me much more aware of what my sleeping habits are. So I go to bed pretty early, um, and I sleep a full night before four, you know, before three or four a.m. Um, but I've gotten used to it. We've been doing this since two thousand and nine or two thousand and sixteen. I've been at Politico since oh nine, and um, it's become second nature to us. 
So today's newsletter goes out at 6.06 a.m. Eastern. And at that moment, you transform into a full-blown Capitol Hill reporter with all the responsibilities that entails? No, I mean, so we have an afternoon edition of Playbook, which went out today uh, around one o'clock or so. I could I could double check. It went out at 12.55 uh, this afternoon, which kind of, uh, and that this, we, this afternoon, we uh, led with what Pelosi was saying about the Democratic governing agenda should Joe Biden win. Um, now, so I come up here, I'm in the Capitol right now. I come up here and, and report and, and do all that stuff. But my main responsibility is playbook. Um, my secondary responsibility is, um, MSNBC and NBC, which I'm a contributor to, and I'll be on, uh, I'm on almost every day. And then, um, that's about it. I mean, I'm a father and a husband, but <laughs> those are also really important to me. But, um, but also, uh, at the end of this year, um, Anna and my journey at Politico is coming to an end after 11 years. So we're, um, so we're, uh, uh, excited about that as well. What is satisfying to you journalistically about writing a newsletter? It's a good question. Um, I feel like the, um, we need to go to people where they are, and a lot of people are in their email. You know, I, I've been re- thinking and reading a lot about about business and about the media business. And Mike Bloomberg, in his book um, Bloomberg on Bloomberg, which is kind of a must read for anybody who has worked at Bloomberg, which I have not. I'm one of the only people that has not. It feels like some days. Um, he said that. Bloomberg was is an information company and um, what first was a computer company and then became an information company. And he said Kodak was a, f- a camera and film company and it was never a photography company, meaning when 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 things went to digital, they were kind of like, uh, what do we do now? So I feel like right now, uh, newsletters are where my audience lives in their email. If they live on an app, I'll be on an app. Um, if they live on some other medium, I'll be on some other medium. But um, my audience, our audience in D.C., uh, reads uh, newsletters and doesn't really have much time for much else. And um, we feel like at, at Politico, uh, we have felt like that playbook coming out at 6 a.m. And, and about 1 p.m. is a good cadence for uh, for our audience. And it, it it's it's a good way to it's 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 scrollable and it's a good business to be honest with you. So you mentioned you're leaving. October 6th, you put out the classic some personal news tweet. You and Ann are going to leave at year's end. So here's my Tim Russert throwback impression. Are you ready to say, Jake, right here on the press box, what your next job is going to be? No, I could tell you I am... uh, I'm not going to go be a wine critic. I'm not going to go be a sports reporter, even though that was what I wanted to do for most of my life. Um, but Anna and I are excited. We've been writing partners now, you know, for nine years, which is crazy. She came to Politico in 2011. She's one of my best friends. She's like a sister to me. Uh, we wrote a book together and, um, you know, we kind of figured that this partnership is working out and neither one of us are, uh, or I'll, I'll speak for myself. I'm not an easy person to get along with. So, so, uh, once I found a partner that works, uh, I, I kind of have to keep, keep, uh, keep that going before I'm out in the cold, but no, no, listen, we, we've been, um, we were really excited to, uh, uh, to do playbook four years ago. Uh, we did it throughout the first term of, of this president and maybe the only term, we don't know that yet. Um, and it felt like a, a natural time. This is basically the only place I've worked. I graduated Columbia and went to the wall street journal as an intern and then came right back, came to Politico and I've been here ever since. So it's, it's about time. Is a new gig going to take on the form of a newsletter? 
not ready to say anything about it yet. Listen to um, this guy, as cagey uh, as a Capitol uh, Hill chief of staff. <laughs> no, I'm just not, we're not ready to say anything about it yet. We have a lot of time left uh, at Politico. Um, it's only, you know, end of October, we have the election. Uh, we have the lame duck session of Congress and we intend to be here right through, the, you know, run. As Paul Ryan said, when he was retiring, we we anticipate to run through the tape. He didn't exactly <laughs> run through the tape, uh, some would say, but uh, I intend to run through the tape. This is kind of an aside, but when did reporters' job announcements start happening in installments? So everybody, as you know, when they leave a job, they tweet, I'm leaving such and such outlet. I'll have more details soon. And then we wait weeks or months sometimes for the payoff. Why can't we just combine those into one announcement? That's a very good question. Uh, and I... Without, without, I don't want to say much more on that. It wasn't exactly, uh, I, I was, I, listen, I'm staying until the end of the year. I'm happy to stay until the end of the year. But listen, Politico, this is a massive franchise for Politico. And I think Politico felt like they needed to get a, um, a heads, a head start on trying to find the next team to, to do playbook. And, uh, I respected that. And I, I thought that was a good plan for them. And they wanted to announce it. Um, they wanted to kind of start looking for people and they didn't want, you know, I, this has been my life. I, I don't know that I don't really exist without Politico for that. I feel like they're such, I'm such a huge part of the place because I've been there for so long and, it, and I'm so defined by them. So like, I wanted to make it easy for them to go or easier for them to go find somebody. And if, and if they started talking to people, it would have gotten out and I didn't want, and we didn't want that to happen where, you know, it would look like some messy divorce when it's actually really not. If that makes sense. Sure. You talked about how yours and Anna's tenure there in the playbook chair has overlapped the Trump administration basically yep. perfectly. You started yep. in summer 2016, if I remember correctly. What? How has your job in Washington journalism changed during the Trump era? Well, you know, my my former colleague, Mike Allen, who wrote Playbook and who who founded Playbook and has founded Axios, you know, the big the big uh, uh, media hit with Jim Vandeheim, my other close friend and former colleague, when he started writing Playbook in 2007, you could kind of get a download and get some reporting from the White House in the morning and it would drive the day when he sent it out at 7 a.m. or whenever he sent it out. Um, that's no longer the case, right? Like Donald Trump does not have a plan in the morning that he looks to carry throughout the day. And that's not an insult or, or a criticism. That's just a reality. So we had to, we had to kind of, um, adapt to that reality and adapt to the reality that what was our, like, we are not Trumpologists like, uh, Maggie Haberman has a, of the New York Times has a really good insight into Donald Trump and his behavior and who he talks to and all that stuff. And so does Jonathan Swan of Axios. I don't have that. That's never been my forte. I, I, I know, you know, the Hill really well and Congress really well. So I just felt like I had to go back to my core competency, which was Congress, power, and, uh, the people of Washington and, um, use that to my advantage to kind of explain why or why not what Trump was doing would fly in on Capitol Hill and more broadly. And that was kind of what our book was about, was the relationship between Trump and um, and Congress and the congressional leadership. But is there trickle down from Trump that he makes so much news and at such, let us say, surprising times that it creates then more Capitol Hill news as runoff? Yes, uh, it does. Because when he says something, people have to respond to it and people have to react to it. And it becomes an entire news cycle of of the Trump kind of, you know, whatever mess is happening this day and that day. And and I would also say I've, I've I, Trump also sucks people into a vortex in which they feel like they are. They I feel like they have to I feel like they oftentimes have the feeling that they have to 
make momentary decisions based on what will get them past the next 15 minutes or 20 minutes or two hours or five hours. And that was never the reality before. So I, I feel like, um, that that has changed and that that's an important thing to keep in mind or was an important thing to keep in mind for the last couple of years um and that has changed the kind of just the rhythms of everything so if we say that washington in to some extent has set up this big journal and journalism apparatus excuse me to cover trump minute by minute and second by second just cover floods of news as it comes in how do you think that will change if joe biden gets elected next week and we just don't have that sort of unpredictable news stream well i think it will bolster the people who are who are um a few truisms about about washington is congress never goes away the white house changes and the people in the white house change but congress changes a lot less frequently than that and and people who cover capitol hill have a lot more access to decision makers so i think that some of the people who Listen, White House reporters are going to have to adjust, right? And maybe in a good way, maybe in a bad way, but they're going to have to adjust to a different pace of news. Now, for some reason, I don't think that Trump is going to like disappear anytime soon. I think he's going to um, stick around and maybe not around Washington, but around the public sphere. And um, I think that that people will cover a lot of that. They'll cover him like an opposition leader instead of like a former president. And um, that will be an interesting thing to adapt to. You mentioned you went to George Washington and the Columbia Journalism School where you studied under the late muckraking reporter extraordinaire Wayne Barrett. What did you learn from Wayne Barrett? Oh, Wayne was Wayne was great. Uh, um, I, a lot. <laughs> I only had him for one semester, um, but Wayne had a way of um, he had a way with politicians that was really fascinating to see. I remember he had us. He had Anthony Weiner pre you know, all of his scandals or uh, in his class and just watching him grill those kinds of politicians was, was absolutely amazing. And I, you know, I remember one time I turned in an this, I don't think I've ever said this publicly. One time I turned in an assignment, it was not good. And, uh, he said, you just interned at Newsweek. And I said, like, yes, I did. Um, <laughs> but you know, that was the cool thing about Columbia is that I, uh, I took Wayne's class. I got to take a class from Walt Bogdanich at the New York Times, who's won like three or four Pulitzers. Um, Sandy Padway, who's a legendary sports editor and sports uh, figure sure. in sports journalism, was my mentor. And I'm still in touch with him. And And he sends me notes when he thinks I get out of line on TV. But most yeah. of the time, he's just like, great job. And I sent, I just sent him my book. And I and I mean, it was like, I I just know, I, I did my master's thesis under his tutelage about Fordham University's basketball team. And um, uh, I, I just like when I was writing my book, the organizational skills that he taught me and how to think about people and characters and rhythm and stuff, that was like, that. that's what was like the basis of my, the foundation of kind of being able to write that book. I've gotten a few of those emails from Sandy over the years and I didn't even study under him. I just know him. So. <laughs> he's a, <laughs> know he's a great guy. He's the best. He's the best. So you mentioned Mike Allen founds Playbook. He leaves mm -hmm. in 2016. Do you lobby internally yes, to get this gig? Big time. Yeah. Oh yeah, big time. Anna and I put together a plan. Um, you know, put together like a proposal. Um, and and had to do like multiple pitches with John Harris, who was one also one of the founders with Jim and Mike. Um, or really John and Jim were the founders. Um, and we had to talk to Robert Albritton, who owns Politico. Um, 
Playbook has been a very big franchise and it's really driven by the authors, right? Um, you kind of have to have a consistent voice and you have to be, you have to have a, a, a view of the world and, um, you are the front porch. I mean, Politico is the front porch. Playbook is the front porch of Politico and has been for years. Um, there's great journalists at Politico, tons of them now. I mean, I joined when it was like 50 people. Now we're 500 people. So it's a lot more than, than it used to be. Um, but. Yeah, I lobbied hard, really hard. And it was a two-year commitment the first time, I think 16 through 18. And I think we re renegotiated in 18 because, you know, there's there's sponsorships and they need to make sure that you're not going to like up and leave. So, um, and then we, we um, my contract was up at the end of this year anyway. So it was, it wasn't out of nowhere that I was, you know, moving on. And lobbying means sending emails and sidling into offices. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. And then once we got the job, we had to almost do a, uh, um, like it, we went to a lot of constituencies that had interest, not financial interest in Playbook, but people who had just been like good to the franchise sources and, and TV networks and stuff over the years and had to kind of uh, introduce ourselves to them. So last month, everybody on Twitter got mad at you, as happens with Washington reporters, because you had tweeted about John Boehner former House Speaker, yeah. said during GOP policy retreats, Boehner would gather reporters for a happy hour. We'd tell us stories, razz us, and shoot the shit about politics and life. It was terrific. Your mentions fill up, including a tweet from director Anna DuVernay, which not, I would not necessarily have expected. Tell me, what is the value of doing an off-the-record session with someone like John Boehner? So the off-the-record session, and I, I just decided not to get into this anymore on Twitter, but I'm happy to talk about it. The off-the-record session that I went to that I was referring to was like with 75 or 80 people. It was like John Boehner and the entire Washington press corps and uh, a lot of members of Congress. And you know, the funny thing is like, I, I wrote more crap stories about John Boehner having no control and being a, uh, uh, having tough times as speaker than anybody. I mean, that was like the heart of my, the beginning of my career. And Boehner hated me for some of those stories, but we had a, a, a business-like relationship. And as he did with the rest of the press corps, as I did with, I do with Nancy Pelosi, as I did with Paul Ryan. Um, and listen, I, I, this, like the idea that we're going to be bought off as a press corps, like 80 of us with, um, cheap wine and like, sh like shitty, you know, like finger food is ridiculous. I'm not friends with John Bader. I don't go out to dinner with him. I, this was like a widely, this is like, this was criticizing me for a widely attended event where I had no competitive advantage or over anybody else because we were all standing in a circle like 50 of us and a lot of us kind of and it was funny because some some of the people that went after me i wanted to respond like hey like your colleague who covers congress for you guys was also at this event so like <laughs> chill out um but anyway like pelosi has a christmas party uh in the capitol that people go to Paul Ryan has things that people have gone to, like uh, Christmas parties, receptions. I mean, it's not like we take things from them for free. We pay to be at the retreat. We, you know, and so I don't know. I, 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 but it's part of the game, right? Like people talk to people off the record. It's all the time, and it's part of understanding the people as people. Um, and that's you know that's uh, that's my view on that. <laughs> the one I latched onto was Soledad O'Brien, who's become this media critic on Twitter often, often very outspoken. <laughs> she said, you wrote that her people ask you to publicize her show in playbook all the time. 
And True. Kate, they did and, recently, and I told them that she's not very appreciative of our work. So, like, you know, I don't think that I need to be publicizing her show, which is of marginal news value to me and to my readership. Um, but, like, listen, the, the retreat that I was talking about where we did this off-the-record thing, and this was what I was thinking about responding to, to Soledad O'Brien, who said she wasn't invited to it. Uh, and I respect her. I think she was a great journalist. At, when she, And I grew up kind of watching Soledad O'Brien. She was a fixture on uh, on CNN in those days when I was a, a young person. And I guess I still am a young person. But um, those retreats are policy retreats at like crappy con- convention hotels around the country. They're, they're like really wonky. And it's the party fighting over tax policy and immigration policy. And we sit in a room and, and get people to leak to us and like have to work hallways. These aren't fun. These are not glamorous affairs. <laughs> they're in the dead of winter in places like Hershey, Pennsylvania and Baltimore and Williamsburg, Virginia, all fine places. But like, it's not like we're there with like golf clubs and like hitting the links with John Boehner. We're sitting in conference rooms waiting for smoke signals for the most part. So anybody who goes to the anyone who goes to those retreats gets invited to the to those kinds of off the record things. They're for everybody. So when you graduate from reporter to playbook author, what was yes. the funniest difference in the way your hill sources regarded you at that moment? What was, what was Not really. I mean, I'm such a I'm I'm such a constant presence up here. Like I I, I go I come to the Capitol every day. I mean, no one is here right now. I'm literally, I'm the only person in the press gallery. But I just have a an OCD thing about coming up to the Capitol because if something happens, I want to be here. So they didn't really treat me differently. Um, and weren't all, any frankly. calls that had been unreturned for a couple of weeks and oh Jake just want to catch up congrats on the new game no 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 playbook but you know people do feel like an ownership over playbook in the sense that like they feel like they're waking up to us every morning so they have the right or the birth to to send you emails and tell you how how bad something has been or how good it is or what they agree with or disagree with like there are some strange people who are playbook readers that not strange but like surprising people who are big playbook readers that I never thought of before I did it like Warren Buffett and, and, um, Maury Povich, uh, nice. uh, you know, not that they're, they're not weird people, but you don't ever have any, like I cover Congress. I don't have any interaction with Warren Buffett. And then I do playbook and, and, you know, we did interviews with him and we did a feature for a while called the playbook interview where we'd interview our readers like Stephen Colbert, Warren Buffett, Paul Ryan, you know, those kinds of people, Mitch McConnell. And, uh, so, you know, it does help you in that sense. Um, but no, it's not, I didn't get treated any, any better or worse or anything like that. It was just, they, most people, some people didn't even know. And, and they're like, why aren't you writing stories anymore? <laughs> like, well, I, <laughs> I haven't seen why. your byline in a while. Yeah. yeah, right. Exactly. All right. Finally, and most importantly, you mentioned you went to George Washington. You worked at the student newspaper, the GW Hatchet with ringer staff writer, Alan Siegel. What is the most embarrassing thing you can tell us about what Alan was like in college? Alan was the, uh, without Alan, I wouldn't have a job because he, I was like an overeager, um, uh, and he'll definitely agree with this. I mean, I could, an overeager, uh, like freshman who just like walked into the student paper the first day and I was just like, I'm here and I, I'll do anything. And like for the first, when I was a freshman, I was just like covering like volleyball and soccer and I was trying to get my way into basketball games and, Alan was one of the most, I mean, at that age, and, I'm, and I, he still is today, but like I was bowled over as by his, um, 
he was the most graceful writer who had the best eye for detail. And we were kids. I mean, we were really young and, and stupid and, and he was a lot less stupid than me. But, uh, I was like, I was like the kind of guy who was like, I want to go to Dayton for the basketball game. Like I'll pay my way there. And he was, you know, you know, he had to like put me back in a cage and Alan got rattled easily in those days. Cause he had a lot, we were a great college paper, the hatchet. Um, and, uh, you know, that, and, and he had a lot of the sports section was very well read. So he had a lot on his shoulders, but he was the best. I, I owe Alan, like anything that I have is probably due to him, him and another editor I had called Michael Barnett, who was the editor of the paper, but Alan was the greatest. You can read Jake Sherman and his colleague, Anna Palmer every morning in playbook. He's on Twitter at Jake Sherman, where career announcements will be coming down the pike yeah, at some right. point. Jake, thanks for coming on the press box. Thanks, Brian. All right, it's time for David Shoemaker Guesses, the strained pun headline. Yeah. Monday's headline about a solution for outdoor dining in Wisconsin was the winter of our tent. (laughs) Tracking back to that story we had in the open, David, about Trump's speech in Omaha. So on Tuesday night, Trump went to Omaha, gave a speech as he normally does at an airfield. There was only one problem. Hundreds of his supporters were left at the airfield with the wind chill at 27 degrees and no great way to get out of there. According to NBC, some walked three miles to waiting buses while others were taken away in ambulances. So the pun here is about a famous failed. How should I put this without completely giving it away? A famous failed festival. What was the Daily Beast strain pun headline? Well, you have to be talking about the fire festival, right? Uh, so yeah, I've just given all this away. Unless it was Woodstock '95 or whatever the the bad Woodstock was. So, uh, fire. Uh, so it's just a Daily Beast piece about this, uh, an aggregated fire, item. Fire. Uh, is it like you're fired? F Y R E D. The you're fired festival. Yes. Oh, great. That's 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 fantastic. The stuff. you're fired festival. Solid work, Daily Beast. He is David Shoemaker. I'm Brian Curtis. Research by Chris Almeida. Production magic by Erica Cervantes. We're back Monday with election week. And David, we've got three shows next week. Three shows. On Monday, we will get you ready for the big night with the New York Times Magazine's Mark Leibovich. Then in the wee hours of Tuesday night or maybe Wednesday morning, we will have an election night instant reaction pod. Then we're back Wednesday, a day earlier than normal. Chew over the results with special guest Jamel Hill. Huge week here at the Press Box. Join us on our D-Desk for more lukewarm takes about the media. See you then, David. See you, Brian.